you're able, please stand and pray. Margaret, is everything okay? All right. All right. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you don't just know what's going on with our lives and our bodies, but Lord, you're, you're intimately concerned. And so I just would ask, Lord, we would all ask that you would grant mercy to Steve and to his bride, Lord, through this time, and that you would protect their hearts and uh, you'd keep them close to you. But Lord, we pray that after surgery that uh, he would be clear of all cancer. And um, yeah, just minister to his body. Give those surgeons um, clarity in all that they're doing. And, uh, and Lord, anything that they might miss, we just pray that you would sovereignly remove any danger from his life, Lord. And use all these things, Lord, as a, just a testimony of your goodness, both your concern for your people, Lord, and for just a testimony to those who are observing, like surgeons and nurses. And so, Lord, we thank you. And Lord, I'm very eager to get into the gospel of Matthew and see all that you would say to us, instruct us, and how you might lead us into just greater devotion to you. So Lord, we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I seems like we've been out of a book of the Bible for a long time now. And so I've been super eager to get back to the exposition of the word. And uh, for us as a, a fellowship to come together and explore and learn from um, Christ, his life, his ministry. Something that's exciting, at least if, if you've been here for the last 15 years. Uh, once we're done with the Gospel of Matthew, we will have completed every Gospel in the New Testament. And uh, so that's exciting. It will be two years or so until then. Uh, <laughs> but then after that, uh, if I am correct, there, there's only three more epistles in the New Testament to do, and we'll have exposited every verse in the New Testament. It's pretty great. So I have a long ways to go in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rather large edition, uh, but we'll, we'll get there if, um, if the Lord doesn't cut things short, which I'm very much okay with if he does that. So, but if he uh, permits us to finish, you know what we'll do? We'll just start over. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for those of you that are newer here at Calvary Chapel Centralia, it, it really is our regular custom to study the books of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Uh, it's, it's our conviction to teach the scriptures as they were given to us, which he did verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, on occasion, we do uh, break, take a break rather to exposit you know, other passages of scripture that would either complement the current book that we're in that we're studying, or to address issues that uh, are impacting the whole church. Uh, we actually did that for, it seems like, a few months after we uh, completed our study in the book of Galatians. We looked at uh, the other uh, major covenants in the Bible. Uh, we considered further God's purpose for, and jurisdiction, rather, of government in light of uh, vaccine mandates and other things. And then, most recently, we've done an overview of uh, biblical theology in regard to family, both marriage and parenting. As I said, that's something that we are planning to make a part of our regular routine here at Calvary Chapel. And, um, and also, uh, it is our custom to provide an introduction uh, to every book before we just dive into it, to give it context and other things. And uh, that is it. When we do the introduction, the, the goal is to really kind of help uh, 
synchronize our brains to what is in uh, the book, what the objectives are, and all of that. And uh, the challenge, though, I think, with doing an introduction is I have to decide what to put in, because I, I want the introduction to go on for weeks and weeks, uh, but that's not really our objective here. Um, so uh, you're going to get a much abbreviated version of what I would like to do. Uh, but what we will be doing this morning is we're going to talk about the author of the book, um, which hopefully it's, it's quite evident to you. We're going to look at the, the approximate date that it was written. We're going to look at the, the, the historical context of what was going on at that time, uh, the divine purpose for the book, uh, its major theme or themes, its primary doctrines and theology, and we'll look at some, um, some, a few things that are unique to the book of Matthew. And then for those of you that love to take notes, I'll be providing an outline for the whole book. And uh, not a very, very long one, just two slides. I don't even know how many slides. Oh, I have 18 slides this morning, so that's not bad. I, I think I've had like 50 slides here before. So you guys, I've, I've helped you with your endurance over time. So, yeah. All right, well, real quick, uh, the word gospel, uh, it comes from a Greek word that means good news. Good news. So when we would say, give me the gospel... Uh, when they said it 2,000 years ago, uh, it meant some form of good news, a herald. But then, of course, the gospel has known to us as the good news about God's only begotten Son, who is Jesus, the Christ, the Savior of men. I'm excited to look at all this. So, Matthew's account of the gospel. Let's get into it. Uh, real quick, before we ever consider... Uh, a human author of the scriptures, it's always necessary to point out the divine inspiration of the text. And by that we mean God as the primary author. And Matthew we would call the instru uh, instrumental or secondary author. Matthew uh, was just an instrument who the Holy Spirit moved upon to ensure that all that was written was an accurate account okay, of all the historical events, the teachings of Christ, guaranteeing that the end result was the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. Okay, the Holy Spirit used Matthew's experience, used his knowledge, his personality, his writing styles to communicate um, all of this for future generations. Um, something that's interesting in the Gospel of John is a promise of Jesus before he was arrested in John 14, 26. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Speaking directly to his, uh, his disciples, who many of them would then become uh, authors of Scripture. And he's promising them that the Holy Spirit himself would come and he would uh, invigorate your memory. He would teach you, he would remind you of all things that you're to record in memory of me. And so the Holy Spirit supernaturally worked through the authors. Peter adds to this. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never, let's say never, ever, came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, knowing this first refers to that which is foremost. It, it has the greatest importance. And that which is foremost, uh, as he's discussing in this, these verses and the whole context, 
is both the nature of Scripture and the method by which uh, God delivered it to us. The nature of Scripture, as we've already kind of pointed out, is both divine and it's human. Okay? Uh, God is the one superintending. He's the one ensuring uh, that the man who has been selected is getting things across the way that God desires them to be. But the primary nature of Scripture is its divine nature. That's its origin, God himself. He's the primary source. And then we have the prophet, human and divine. What a great mystery that is, that how God would use a man, his personality, his writing style. Now, some people say that that's not really true, and God just dictated everything. But if you've read the letters of Paul versus the letter of John, you know we have two very different personalities and two very different writing styles. Okay? John is, he's all over the place. Outlining John is like, well, it's impossible to outline John. <laughs> and Paul is just very systematic and um, just so different the way that God has used uh, men. Verse 21 says this prophetic nature of Scripture, which is the divine element of Scripture, has, he says, has never come to us by way of man's will, not his creativity not his genius. He's instrumental. Prophecy only comes to us when the Holy Spirit himself moves upon a chosen vessel to reveal those things to us. And the chosen vessel for our book, of course, is Matthew. Matthew. All right, now when we, uh, we're taking Matthew's authorship for granted, by the way, but when we seek to establish uh, details like human authorship and date, we have to look at two different sources. Uh, we have to look at external sources, and we have to look at internal ones. External sources are those documents that are outside of the Bible that help us to make our case. And of course, the internal sources are details found within the text of the Bible. Let's look at both quickly here. Let's look at external first. So if you've read Matthew, you realize that Matthew did not put his name at the beginning or at the end of the book, uh, as Paul does in many of his epistles. It's not there. Uh, and so that makes things a little challenging. And uh, because critics abound, his authorship is contested. Uh, but if you're, uh, if you're familiar at all with biblical criticism, there's just always a critic. And, um, and the critics have failed so miserably over the years that I, I kind of like the topic of, of biblical criticism, so, especially in regard to Luke's writings. But that's for another time. Yeah. The earliest Christians... The earliest Christians, and I mean those that were alive before the end of the first century and, uh, and died within the first quarter of the second, and then on to the fourth century of the church. All of those early Christians, the writers, the authorities, they unanimously said that Matthew was the author of the epistle, okay, or the, the gospel, rather. The first one, that, uh, the earliest one that we have, was from a man named Papias. How would you like to have one of your kids named Papias? He was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a real disciple of John, the apostle. And of course, John was a disciple of Jesus. Papias says this in regard to the authorship of Matthew's gospel. He says, so then, Matthew, indeed, in the Hebrew language, put together the logia in writing. Now, the term logia is probably a reference to the, the gospel as a written document, written document, but whatever Papias, in no uncertain terms, he attributes authorship to Matthew very, very early. 
he died in 130 AD, and uh, he was alive for the writing of all of John's books for second, third John, Revelation, and his gospel. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah. Origen, interesting man named Origen. If you want an entertaining uh, study, you can read all about him. But he says this, as I have learned by tradition, he means oral tradition. Uh, and mind you, oral tradition today is not much to speak of. But the studies that they've given to oral tradition of the past is extremely powerful. Uh, people's ability to retain knowledge without all the stuff that we have today uh, is astounding. But anyway, he says, as I have learned by tradition concerning the four Gospels, which alone are received without dispute by the church of God under heaven, the first was written by St. Matthew, once a tax gatherer, afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's just two okay, of uh, very early external sources point to Matthew's authorship. And so I, when I do, when I research this stuff, I, I, I've just come to terms with the fact that it requires a great deal of arrogance and, uh, and literary gymnastics for modern scholars some 2,000 years after the fact to dispute the earliest of sources on all of this, especially when their own reasons are dubious at best and they're loaded with presuppositions like anti-supernaturalism. Um, they've already made their case when they come to the scriptures. And so I think that we can easily uh, just, set, just set them aside. If you're going to have objections, they have to be reasonable ones. And uh, since they're making the objections, they, they bear the burden of proving them. And so let them try, uh, as they have over the years. Anyway, what about the internal evidence that would support Matthew's authorship? You'll have to pay attention to this more. Uh, some interesting statements in Matthew's gospel that suggest authorship. Okay? First is found in Matthew 10. Uh, in this passage, the author is giving a list of Jesus' disciples. And in verse 3, he says this, Philip and Bartholomew... Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and however you say that man's name, Labius, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Let's just call him Thaddeus. Why would this suggest that Matthew was the author? Why would that? Because Matthew is referred to in a self-deprecating and humiliating manner, which was very typical when Christian people in the past, spoke about themselves. I think it's a practice we could learn from today. Okay? Uh, it's self-deprecating because the occupation of tax collector, while it made plenty of money, they were hated by their own people because they collected taxes for the oppressors of the nation. They were traitors to the nation. Okay? So tax collector was a four-letter word. Now, further, when Mark and Luke provide the list of apostles in their account, they do not refer to Matthew in such negative terms, but they only give his name. Apparently, they believed that it was for the individual to speak less of himself, not his friends. Okay? The same sort of humility is found in Matthew 9, 9 through 10. Also, there's a, a humiliating place in the Gospel of Mark uh, where the young man, at the, at, when Jesus was arrested, uh, he showed up in like a sheet or something, and they tried to lay hold of him, and the sheet came off, and he fled the scene naked. That's a story for Mark to tell, okay? Not for anybody else. <laughs> so that attributes uh, authorship to Mark for the Gospel of Mark. But anyway, uh, Matthew 9, 9 through 10, 
that's that'd be a lesson to you. If you're going to go to that kind of scene where people are being arrested, wear more than a sheet. Okay? <laughs> It'll show up on Facebook, trust me. <laughs> but in Matthew 9, 9 through 10, the author just mentions that Jesus sat at a table in a house. He sat at a table in a house. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. How does that point to Matthew's authorship? First, this actually takes place in Matthew's house, which he doesn't even mention. Okay? And second, the meal itself is overlooked as being insignificant, at least in Matthew's account. But when Luke mentions the dinner, things are very, very different. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Levi was another name of Matthew. You see the differences there. In Matthew's account, Jesus just sat at the table, which implies that he was eating, but there's no mention of whose house he was in. Big deal, right? Well, in Luke's account, Levi was Matthew. He holds a great feast in his own house, in Jesus' honor. You know, years later, when, when Luke... 59, 60 AD is interviewing Matthew regarding the history of Jesus' life. I can just kind of hear Luke saying, oh, come on, Levi. Jesus didn't just come over for some falafel. You threw a party in the man's honor, and all kinds of people came to the event. Don't be so humble. See, this all suggests that Matthew didn't want to draw attention to himself, to his wealth, so he minimized the event Whereas Luke described the dinner for all that it was. Okay, that was for somebody else to say. But for Luke, or for Matthew, to just look at all these things that I did, it would be looked down upon. And so Matthew had a tendency, as the other authors did when referring to themselves, uh, self-deprecating. In fact, Luke, in the, God, in the book of Acts, when he finally joins Paul, it goes from him describing what they did to what we did. He doesn't even include himself in it, except at the very beginning when he's writing to his friend. It's very interesting. So how would you hide yourself in your own literature? Well planned by Matthew. Okay. All right. Matthew's Gospel, the first of the four, one of the original disciples, a former tax collector. We'll get into all that stuff when we get into his book. Let's look at the date. When, when did Matthew write all of this? When did he write it? Now, Exact dating is not something that we can give you. It's not in there that it was 55 AD. Um, so, and no early Christians give us a date. But there's clues that we can examine. Uh, obviously, it had to be written after the events, right? Okay, all right. And before his death. We all agreed on those? Okay, we don't know exactly when he died. But the events uh, were finished by about AD 33, now, there is good evidence that he wrote well before the invasion uh, of Israel by Titus the Roman, uh, which ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was 70 AD. And there's also good evidence that he wrote before the Gospel of Luke was written, which was written in 60 AD. We know that very well. So sometime between the years 80, 33 and 70, uh, how do we date before 70 AD? Uh, first, there's a few times in Matthew's gospel where he says, to this day, to this day. This is happening, this is thought of to this 
day. For example, when Judas, uh, after Jesus was arrested and condemned to death, uh, says that he took the 30 pieces of silver and he cast them into the temple, Matthew 27, 5 through 8. And so the, the chief priests, they had the money gathered up, and because it was blood money, they couldn't put it into the treasury. So what they did was they bought a field with it so that they could bury foreigners in that field. So they purchased the field, and they called the field the field of blood, the field of blood, purchased with blood money. And Matthew says that they continue to call it that to this day, meaning up to the time that I was writing this text. So how does that date the writing of the gospel before 70 AD? Well, if you've read Josephus' account of the destruct or invasion of Israel, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, you know that it changed everything radically for the Jews. It changed much in regard to their religion, their culture, their customs, uh, all of that. Thousands and thousands of Jews were murdered, and many thousands others were packed off to Rome, uh, while others still were scattered, sold into slavery, and all kinds of things. It seems highly unlikely that this insignificant field would continue to have any significance among the Jews after all of these traumatic issues. You understand? Why would it be, continue to be talked about to this day after all of this devastation? You know what people were talking about after 70 AD? The destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple. Also, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, in the Gospel of Matthew are discussed as yet future. Matthew 24. Okay, if the temple had been destroyed before Matthew wrote his Gospel, he would have likely pointed out the destruction of the temple as a fulfilled prophecy of Jesus because Jesus said, this puppy's coming down. Okay? If it was down, Matthew would have said, there's fulfilled prophecy. But it's never mentioned. Never mentioned. And it being such a devastating thing to the Jews, why wasn't it mentioned? One more thing. Luke's introduction to his Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, gives us good reason to believe that Matthew wrote before him. Luke indicates that others had already written an account of Jesus' life. Well, we only know of two others, because John wrote his toward the close of the first century. So Luke wrote well before him. So there's only two others that we know of. And as we said earlier, Luke's gospel, uh, it's easy to date. It's, it's, it's about 60 AD during Paul's imprisonment in uh, Caesarea on the sea in Acts 23, 31 through 35. So this actually pushes the date of Matthew even back further. Okay? So for our purposes this morning, and I think that uh, all careful scholarship has ended up at about 50 to 55 AD uh, at the writing of Matthew. Okay? Had to be done in time for Luke to interview him and review all of his details. You get it? All right. Either case, whatever is the case, it's very early. Very early. What about the historical context? What was happening... At the time of the events is called the historical context. Now, historical context is extremely valuable to our understanding of a book and the, the contents within it. Okay? We need the historical documentation. We need historical context. This includes things like the political atmosphere of the day. Were there politics in the Gospels? Oh, man, there was. Okay? How those politics came to be... Uh, all of the different perspectives uh, within them, uh, the various parties involved. Those poor people also had a, a two-party system. <laughs> yeah, Jesus is going to engage with all of this, and it's quite entertaining. 
If he were alive today, oh man, what an exciting circus that would be. Yeah, he probably wouldn't have lasted three years though. Um, in the historical context, we want to talk about culture and we want to talk about figures of speech and customs, economics, social structure. All of those things are valuable uh, for the understanding and interpretation of the text. We, we got to be very careful that we don't take Western concepts and ideas and, and all of that and culture and impose it on the scriptures and then try to come to some kind of uh, legitimate interpretation. Okay, we must interpret it out from its own historical context. Okay? We most definitely have to consider the religious life of the people and how it affected their daily lives, how they viewed the world around them. And above all else, we have to look at the, the theological and the doctrinal perspectives that people had, how they came to be, how they uh, impacted the interpretation of the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Old Testament is going to be discussed all the time. And we're going to have competing views. We're going to have Jesus, and we're going to have all these other people. And, uh, and Jesus is going to set a lot of arguments. All right. Now, if we went into all of the historical context, we would have our PhDs real fast. We ain't doing that, okay? Uh, we want to get to the gospel itself, which uh, we'll get to quickly. Let me talk, though, about Israel real quick. In the first century, Israel was in a less than desirable situation politically. By sheer military might, in 63 BC, Israel was coerced into what is called the Pax Romana, a term that means the peace of Rome. But if you know the history of that, it means peace according to Rome. Okay? As long as you do everything that Rome ensures, uh, demands rather, things won't get ugly. But every country that was coerced into the Pax Romana enjoyed Rome's protection, Rome's highways, Rome's commerce and trade, Rome's form of government, Rome's common language, which is Koine Greek, and Rome's tolerance of other religions. You see, as long as you didn't speak against the gods of Rome, <clears throat> excuse me, and as long as you honored Caesar, at, that, at the beginning, though, it was the dead Caesar, as God, uh, Rome wouldn't interfere with your religion, for the most part. Uh, they did place some restrictions on some really strange cults within the empire, uh, but when you read about those cults, you go, that was a good idea. So, but Israel, though, of all the other uh, nations out there and, and ethnic groups, they enjoyed a religious exemption from uh, honoring Caesar as God, and they weren't bothered in regard to, the, to Roman paganism, at least not during the life of Christ. The Hebrew faith was historically and vehemently monotheistic. That is, they only believed in one God, and they worshipped him alone, according to the Ten Commandments. So the Hebrews, they were unique among the surrounding nations, where all the ones out there were pagan and polytheistic. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. And some of them, are, we can't even keep track of how many there were. But Rome had granted Israel this exemption for a couple reasons. One, years earlier, the Jews had aided Julius Caesar in a, in a battle, okay, in some of his military campaigns. And of course, he won. Okay? So they had a little mercy on him. Also, the Hebrew faith, uh, from their perspective, was an ancient and well-established religion. So they believed that they should probably be left alone. And Jews had a history of revolt whenever paganism was imposed on them. Uh, they had spilled the blood of multiple tyrants uh, because of their imposition 
of polytheism and other things, especially in the middle of the second century BC. We know the story of Antiochus Epiphany. Uh, he sacrificed a, a sow, a pig, in the temple on the altar, desecrating the temple. And then through the process of time, the, uh, the Maccabees, they spilled a lot of Syrian and Greek blood over this issue until the temple was rededicated. And after that, under the leadership of Judas, the hammer, uh, they made their point very clear. And the Romans, knowing about all of that, they said, let's, let's just leave it alone, okay? Let's just leave it alone. So they tolerated them for their religion for quite some time. Just let it lie. So they had freedom to worship as they wanted. Uh, not that there was no uh, intrusion from Rome. They, they were just so obnoxious to the Jews. Among the, the many restrictions placed on Israel, one of the most important prophetically and for the context of the gospel is the removal of Israel's right to exercise capital punishment. Now we'll get into why that's important prophetically from Genesis chapter 49. It's one of my favorite prophecies in all the Bible. And then as we get into the text more, it'll all become evident. As we know, in order to have Jesus executed, they had to turn him over to Rome. Now they tried to in secret, and they had killed heretics and other people in secret before, uh, but when it came to Jesus, they wanted to make sure it was done as legal as possible, and so they had to bring him to Pilate, the, the, uh, the Roman official. Now as far as uh, Israel being self-governed, uh, Israel had a, a, what we would call a political and religious system, which was divided, as I said, into two parties, a schism, really. We had the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? Uh, the two parties sat on the Jewish high council. Now, where did I go? Can you still hear me? Can you still hear me? Oh, I stopped shouting at myself. It's kind of nice. Yeah, they both sat on the high council, uh, which was the Sanhedrin, uh, the high priest presided over it, himself being a Sadducee, which is a big problem. Okay, now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that uh, that's a lot of the excitement, right? We all love a good fight, and uh, there's a lot of fighting in the Gospels. Uh, the Sadducees uh, were typically liberal in their theology, liberal in their theology. They denied the existence of angels, miracles, the resurrection, and the afterlife. And they would use Scripture mostly for what was political, politically expedient. Even the high priest would do this. They also cooperated with Rome. With Rome. They wanted to please the emperor. And so the Sadducees, uh, essentially, they, they exercised more political power than their opponents uh, because the high priest was among them and because of their relationship with Rome. Uh, the Sadducees did uh, consist mostly of the, the priestly class. The Pharisees, on the other hand, these were the the more, you know, of an extreme form of religion. They were conservative in their views of Scripture, and typically, historically, up until about the first century, they had the best uh, interest of the people in mind. I know that by the time the first century rolls around, they're just really yucky people. In their origin, though, they were great. Okay? They were the purists. They were protecting the faith that was passed down uh, from the fathers. They were ensuring that it was passed down to the next generation. But over time, they lost sight of their original mission. They became increasingly harsh and critical, especially of the people, which led to all kinds of religious and moral hypocrisy. And uh, Jesus confronts that head on. But eventually, as quite often happens, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were united, at least when it came to their enemy, who was Jesus. 
So it was politically expedient for the Sadducees to have Jesus executed because to them, he reeked of insurrection, which put them in a very bad place with Rome. Okay? And if they were to execute Jesus, it would spare the Pharisees the continual public shaming. <laughs> His every encounter with them, they would just walk away so embarrassed in front of all the people. And then they became jealous of him. And he was always challenging their interpretation of the law of Moses. And if the people were to embrace Jesus' interpretation of the law of Moses, it would radically change the Jewish religion, which Jesus intended, by the way. And so the fact is, he was everything the prophets predicted. He was nothing what the Jewish leadership expected okay, or wanted. He didn't fit their preconceptions. He was just, to them, he was trouble. Now, one more thing to add regarding the historical context is the mixture of Hebrew and Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. By the first century, uh, the Jews had been highly influenced by Greek culture. Um, they even translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek, a volume known as the Septuagint. I have one. Uh, you're probably more familiar with it than you may know, because almost, well, the vast majority of times when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's from the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew text. Okay. In my opinion, the Septuagint was an absolute hatchet job of a translation, uh, but it was what they had, and so they used it. So when people say, well, what Bible should I use? Well, use the one you have, because Jesus did. Okay. And he had the Septuagint. My goodness. Anyway, now I bring some of this up uh, partly because there are a number of people within the Christian community and what they've done is they've kind of romanticized uh, first century Jewishness. That the Jewish culture was like the supreme culture, the best culture, the, the, the purest and whatever. Uh, and so what they do is they try to pick up on the customs and mimic those things, even though Paul condemned it for, for Gentile Christians to do that. Okay? This idea about uh, Jewish culture is ignorant at best. Okay? What they did in the first century is not necessarily okay or good for us. Okay, if we take all of Jewish culture in the first century and we try to apply it today, we're really going to be screwed up, especially as we try to exercise the Christian faith. Okay? There are a number of, of cultural differences uh, within Israel itself, even from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south. How big are the differences from the northern United States to southern? They're huge. They're huge. Okay? And the greatest differences, I think, are the food, <laughs> personally. Yeah. Also, uh, Judea in the south with Galilee in the north, less than 100 miles apart, there was a difference in accent. That's what gave Peter away as a Galilean during Jesus' trial. It's like, hold a, sec hold a second. I can hear it. It's in your, your accent. You're a Galilean. Peter, poor Peter. We'll come to that story. Uh, wedding customs. I, I often hear Christians talking about, well, the Jews did this, mm -hmm. but not everywhere and not always. Okay, so things aren't as concrete as people think. Okay, uh, there's differences in culture from a rural context to an urban one, and uh, just like most places in the world. And then to mix things up even more, there were religious liberals, there was conservatives, and there was divided camps among the conservatives. Uh, there were undertones and overtones of Hellenism, which was a, a, a corrupting cancer in Jewish culture, uh, as it is in American culture. Um, it created all kinds of diversity within the nation of Israel, and it creates a lot of fun challenges for us as we interpret the text. So that'd be good, all right? All right, 
That's all I'm going to give you for historical context. I don't want to lose anybody here. So, yeah, that's the stage in which Jesus was born. And mind you, it was at the right time in history. Perfect, according to the Father's sovereignty. What's the purpose? Why was the Gospel of Matthew written? The first reason, I would say, is to demonstrate, especially to the Jews, that Jesus is their Messiah. The, the apologetic value of the Gospel of Matthew is tremendous. Uh, a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine, uh, after living in, moved from Russia, lived in Israel, and observing the ultra-Orthodox and all of that, he read the Gospel of Matthew and got saved. Okay? And that was his first exposure to Christianity, was, was Matthew's Gospel. Okay? It's good stuff. Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew rather, in, in an apologetic form, in defending the faith, he spoke of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy at least 15 times. And we will look at all of those thoroughly when we go through. Second, um, or fourth rather, my, my notes are all screwed up. That's a mystery I'll figure out later. Yeah. Uh, also, Matthew no doubt wanted to provide the early church with an, an accurate eyewitness account of Jesus' life. I mean, how would it be to sit in a fellowship where Matthew or John or what would you want them to do? We don't want to hear from anybody else. We want to hear from the eyewitness. And so what we also want is for our children to have that account. The greatest story ever told should be the greatest story ever written okay, for every generation after that. No one simply just you know, sees and hears what those guys saw and heard and don't write it, don't have it published or something. How many of you guys remember Don Francisco? Man, are you kidding me? You got you to gotta go to YouTube, Don Francisco. I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. It's great. Matthew had to tell somebody. He's been telling it for about 2,000 years. We're going to tell it for another two years, probably. So, <laughs> The theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. The kingdom of heaven. Okay? It appears everywhere. It's, uh, it's talked about being predicted by the prophets. It's presented in the text. And then it's also talked about him coming to reign. Okay? As we've talked about many times, all of God's promises to the Jews will be fulfilled by Jesus. We talked about the land, the throne, the redemption promises a couple months ago. Jesus will secure their borders for them. He will redeem their souls, and he will rule over them from David's throne. Matthew's gospel is an anticipation of all of those things. You know, for the believing Jew, Matthew's gospel is the most exciting. Most exciting. All right, theology and doctrine. Uh, I would love to spend weeks on this, but we'll just address it when we get to the text. But real quick, uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it's going to address every necessary teaching of the Christian faith, every single one, either explicitly or implicitly, like the divine inspiration, authority, and inspiration of the scriptures, Jesus' virgin conception. Nobody thinks that's important anymore. Uh, it is key to our theology. If Jesus was not virgin conceived, he is not the Savior, okay? Uh, Jesus' deity, his lordship, his preexistence, his eternal sonship to the Father, uh, the Trinity. What an abrupt thing for the Jews, for the Trinitarian formulas to come up, both in Jesus' baptism and then in the Great Commission. Then his atoning death and, of course, his justifying resurrection. Many of the things we'll talk about, they all come out loud and clear in his gospel. We're almost done here. Try not to drown you guys with information. Some interesting things about Matthew. Check this out. Matthew quotes and alludes to the Old Testament at least 100 times. 
One scholar says 129 times, and he does it from 25 of the 39 Old Testament books. How many guys think you could quote from 25 of the 39 books? Okay, we'll point those out as we go. Okay, uh, many of the citations regard the fulfillment of prophecy in respect to the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Uh, Matthew's working knowledge of the Old Testament is just impressive. And then, um, for the first time, the the word church shows up, and, it, and it's in an anticipatory uh, whatever. It's gone. Uh, it, it comes up in, as he's anticipating it to come. Okay? But by the time Matthew wrote, of course, it had already come. Also, Matthew records 13 parables of Jesus that were overlooked by the other gospel writers. So you can only find them in Matthew. All right, for those of you that love an outline, uh, I'll provide it. It's real quick. Uh, for those of you that could care less, go ahead and just check out until we pray. Okay? Uh, this particular outline I stole from the late Dr. Norman Geisler, a favorite theologian of mine. It's very simple. The person of the king, chapter 1 through 3.12. There's the preparation of the king, chapter 3 through chapter 4.11. The proclamation of the king, chapter 4 through 9, verse 38. The propagation of the king, chapter 10 through 25.46. The passion of the king. Now, don't let that word trip you up. It means Suffering, it means pain, okay? at least at that time. Chapter 26 through 2766, and of course, concerning the resurrection and his authority in the world, the power of the king, chapter 28. And that's all I got for you. I look forward to getting into the text now. So please uh, read ahead. I know it begins with a genealogy, uh, but if any genealogy is important in world history, it's the one in Matthew and the one in Luke. All other ones, Paul says, don't dispute over. Okay? So uh, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. You're getting out a couple minutes early, so I don't want any complaints. All right. I did see a couple new faces uh, in the church. I'd love to meet you. Get to know you a little bit. And don't forget, next Sunday after service, uh, we'll have the, all the pastors and elders together with pizza. And uh, you can uh, just come for the pizza if you like, uh, or you can even engage with us if you like. Oh, there's a sign-up, so we know how much pizza to order? Okay. All right, Mike, you've been here for more than a year, so, I mean, come on. All right. Because I noticed you were at the last one, but you've been here for like 13 years. Just going to point that out. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that, that your story was recorded for us. Lord, so that we could be saved. The historical event of your toning death and your resurrection, it saves us because it's historical because it's real. And Lord, we are hungry to know more about you and your life, your ministry, your teaching, or that we might be able to explore the things of the faith. As Paul would say, with fear and trembling, help us to unpack it, Lord, for your glory, and that we might walk with you more closely. See, I give us understanding, give us grace to walk in it. And um, Lord, thank you for my church family. And I just pray that you bless them this week, Lord. Give them opportunity in this messed up world to shine for you, to be an influence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, love you guys.